We continue with the opinion of the court in United States XREL Shooty v. SuperValue, Inc. Part 2 Based on the FCA's statutory text and its common law roots, the answer to the question presented is straightforward. The FCA's scienter element refers to respondents' knowledge and subjective beliefs, not to what an objectively reasonable person may have known or believed. And even though the phrase usual and customary may be ambiguous on its face, such facial ambiguity alone is not sufficient to preclude a finding that respondents knew their claims were false. Section A. We start, as always, with the text of the FCA. Here, the FCA defines the term knowingly as encompassing three mental states. First, that the person has actual knowledge of the information. Second, that the person acts in deliberate ignorance of the truth or falsity of the information. And third, that the person acts in reckless disregard of the truth or falsity of the information. In short, either actual knowledge, deliberate ignorance, or recklessness will suffice. That three-part test largely tracks the traditional common law scienter requirement for claims of fraud. For example, one widely cited English decision, Derry v. Peake, 1889, articulated the rule as follows. Fraud is proved when it is shown that a false representation has been made, one, knowingly, or two, without belief in its truth, or three, recklessly, careless whether it be true or false. And capturing the FCA's use of the term deliberate ignorance, that decision noted that an action for fraud would lie if a person making a false statement had shut his eyes to the facts or purposely abstained from inquiring into them. Those standards have been cited and widely adopted by American courts in the century since. That the text of the FCA tracks the common law is unsurprising because, as we have recognized, the FCA is largely a fraud statute. Indeed, the FCA was first enacted in 1863 to stop the massive frauds perpetuated by large contractors during the Civil War. To this day, the FCA refers to false or fraudulent claims pointing directly to the common law meaning of fraud. In the absence of statutory text to the contrary, we would assume that Congress intends to incorporate the well-settled meaning of such a common law term. And here, the FCA's definition of knowingly confirms that assumption by largely tracking the common law scienter standards for fraud. On their face and at common law, the FCA's standards focus primarily on what respondents thought and believed. First, the term actual knowledge refers to whether a person is aware of information. Second, the term deliberate ignorance encompasses defendants who are aware of a substantial risk that their statements are false, but intentionally avoid taking steps to confirm the statement's truth or falsity. And third, the term reckless disregard 
similarly captures defendants who are conscious of a substantial and unjustifiable risk that their claims are false, but submit the claims anyway. Again, that tracks traditional common law fraud, which ordinarily depends on a subjective test and the defendant's culpable state of mind. What typically matters at common law is whether the defendant made the false statement without belief in its truth or, recklessly, careless of whether it is true or false. If a defendant knows that he lacks an honest belief in the statement's truth, that is often enough to establish scienter for fraud. Both the text and the common law also point to what the defendant thought when submitting the false claim, not what the defendant may have thought after submitting it. As noted above, the text encompasses those who knowingly present a false or fraudulent claim. The term knowingly thus modifies present tense verbs like presents. As such, the focus is not, as respondents would have it, on post hoc interpretations that might have rendered their claims accurate. It is instead on what the defendant knew when presenting the claim. Section B. The difficulty here, however, is that the phrase usual and customary is on its face less than perfectly clear. We assume, as the district court ruled in SuperValue's case, that respondents' usual and customary prices were their discounted ones. If so, it might have been a forgivable mistake if respondents had honestly read the phrase as referring to retail prices, not discounted prices. But the Seventh Circuit did not hold that respondents made an honest mistake. It held that because other people might make an honest mistake, defendants' subjective beliefs became irrelevant to their scienter. Respondents make three main arguments in support of that rule, but none is persuasive. 1. Respondents first focus on the inherent ambiguity of the phrase at issue here, asserting that they could not have known that their claims were inaccurate because they could not have known what the phrase usual and customary actually meant. The most that is possible, respondents posit, is that they took a correct guess. We disagree. Although the terms in isolation may have been somewhat ambiguous, that ambiguity does not preclude respondents from having learned their correct meaning, or at least becoming aware of a substantial likelihood of the term's correct meaning. To illustrate why, consider a hypothetical driver who sees a road sign that says, drive only reasonable speeds. That driver, without any more information, might have no way of knowing what speeds are reasonable and what speeds are too fast. But then assume that the same driver was informed earlier in the day by a police officer that speeds over 50 miles per hour are unreasonable and then noticed that all the other cars around him are going only 48 miles per hour. In that case, the driver might know that reasonable speeds are anything under 50 miles per hour, or, at the least, he might be aware of an unjustifiably high risk that anything over 50 miles per hour is unreasonable. Indeed, 
If the same police officer later pulled the driver over, we imagine that he would be hard-pressed to argue that some other person might have understood the sign to allow driving at 80 miles per hour. The same analysis applies here. According to petitioners, respondents received notice that the phrase usual and customary referred to their discount prices. In some cases, it seems, from the same entities to which they reported their prices. And according to petitioners, respondents comprehended those notices and then tried to hide their discounted prices. If that is true, then perhaps respondents actually knew what the phrase meant or perhaps respondents were aware of an unjustifiably high risk that the phrase referred to their discounted prices. And if that is true, then respondents may have known that their claims were false. The facial ambiguity of the phrase thus does not by itself preclude a finding of scienter under the FCA. 2. Second, like the Seventh Circuit, respondents rely on SAFECO. They contend that SAFECO already interpreted the common law definitions of knowing and reckless, and that it did so by looking first at whether the defendant's reading of the statute was objectively unreasonable. Accordingly, respondents conclude that, because the FCA has the same common law terms, it should be read with the same objective common law focus. This argument fails twice over. First, Safeco interpreted a different statute, the FCRA, which had a different mens rea standard, willfully. While Safeco did reference the common law standards for knowing, and reckless conduct. Its interpretation was ultimately tied to the FCRA's particular text. To take SAFECO as establishing categorical rules for those terms would accordingly abandon the care we have traditionally taken to construe such words in their particular statutory context. And, as explained above, the FCA's Sienter standards are plainly satisfied by a defendant's conscious belief that his claims are false. Second, Safeco did not purport to set forth the purely objective safe harbor that respondents invoke. To the contrary, Safeco stated that a person is reckless if he acts knowing or having reason to know of facts which would lead a reasonable man to realize that his actions were substantially risky. Or, as Safeco alternatively put it, the common law of recklessness contained an objective standard because it encompassed actions involving an unjustifiably high risk of harm that is either known or so obvious that it should be known. Thus, as we have stated previously, nothing in Safeco suggests that we should look to facts that the defendant neither knew nor had reason to know at the time he acted. By a similar token here, we do not look to legal interpretations that respondents did not believe or have reason to believe at the time they submitted their claims. 3. Respondents make one more argument, approaching the issue from a somewhat different angle. They contend that at common law, 
their claims would not be actionable as fraudulent even if their reported prices were not accurate under the correct meaning of usual and customary. Their argument is as follows. At common law, misrepresentations of law are not actionable. Only misrepresentations of fact are. Because the FCA incorporates the common law of fraud, it embodies that same limitation, and the claims here would have been knowingly false only because respondents correctly understood what usual and customary meant. Therefore, respondents conclude, their reports were not false because of any misrepresentation of fact. To the contrary, their claims would have been false only because of their view of the law. But those premises do not support that conclusion. To be sure, many courts appear to have stated, as a general rule, that misrepresentations of law are not actionable at common law. So, for example, if a defendant had told the plaintiff, your claim will be dismissed because federal courts lack jurisdiction over claims like that, that representation might not be actionable as a fraud. Varying rationales appear to have been given for this rule, including that such statements are of mere opinion and that no one could justifiably rely on them. For purposes of these cases, we assume without deciding that the FCA incorporates some version of this rule. Even then, the rule has significant limits on its own terms. As relevant here, statements involving some legal analysis remain actionable if they carry with them by implication an assertion about facts that justify the speaker's statement. So, as a contrasting example, a person might be liable for falsely stating that the plumbing work that I did on your house complied with state law. That is because such a statement says something about both the correct meaning of building codes and the facts about the home's construction. And homeowners might justifiably rely on that latter representation about the facts, which thus could be actionable as fraud. Respondents' disclosures here sound more like our hypothetical plumber, not our hypothetical legal advisor. Rather than saying this is what usual and customary means, respondents essentially said, this is what our usual and customary prices are. In doing so, they plainly implied facts about their prices that were not known to the planned sponsors, pharmacy benefit managers, and state Medicaid agencies that received their claims. Petitioners' cases thus make out a valid fraud theory, even under respondents' common law rule. Under the FCA, petitioners may establish scienter by showing that respondents won actually knew that their reported prices were not their usual and customary prices when they reported those prices. Two, were aware of a substantial risk that their higher retail prices were not their usual and customary prices and intentionally avoided learning whether their reports were accurate. Or three, were aware of such a substantial and unjustifiable risk but submitted the claims anyway. 
If petitioners can make that showing, then it does not matter whether some other objectively reasonable interpretation of usual and customary would point to respondents' higher prices. For Sienter, it is enough if respondents believed that their claims were not accurate. We need not address any of the other factual or legal disputes involved in these cases, including whether petitioners have made a showing sufficient under the correct legal standard to preclude summary judgment. Nor do we need to address any of the party's policy arguments, which cannot supersede the clear statutory text. We accordingly vacate the judgments below and remand these cases to the Seventh Circuit for further proceedings consistent with this opinion. It is so ordered. We've come to the end of the opinion. Until next episode, thanks for listening to What SCOTUS Wrote Us.